Happy Easter, church. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And today I get to cap off the last message of our 12-week series that we're doing alongside Mosaic Church in Austin, a series called The Story of the Bible. Now, if I came up to you and randomly said something to you, which if you know me, that's not quite random for me. But if I were to say to you, hey, he laid up on 18, and he approached cleanly, and he he clinched with a bogey putt, wouldn't that be really encouraging? No. No, because you don't know the context of the story. But if I just told you that, hey, Tiger Woods, after years of humiliation of his own doing, And after a successful career seemingly squandered, and after a whole bunch of pain, came from behind for the very first time and won the Masters, clinching with a bogey putt on 18. It might just be a little bit more context, but maybe even enough to make you inspired and maybe even a little bit encouraged, right? In the same way, if I just came up to you and I said, He is risen! If you're churchy enough, you might know how to mechanically reply. Remember, he is risen. Indeed, which is probably the only time you say the word indeed. But you know how to say that. But you might be missing the context to know why that's important. And to how to rightly apply that truth to the dead things in your life that God wants to resurrect. With the power that's still available to you. And it might be because you need more context in the story. Not just the story about the masters, but about the master and about his Bible. And how the Bible tells of the story about how we were created for glory. How we squandered that glory with terrible sin. And how Jesus came to live and die and raise in a way that can powerfully secure for us present hope and a future reality of glory that we can align ourselves with Today, Now, if I tell you the context of that story, then the he is risen indeed stuff might actually have more power indeed for you to attach yourself to. Amen? So today we're going to talk about the future in the context of the story of the Bible. Today on Easter Sunday, we're actually going to go to Revelation, the book, and talk about the culmination or the end of all things. Can you stand to your feet with me? We're in Revelation chapter 7. We stand to honor God's word, which stands above us. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 14. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, And worshiped, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. 
Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where do they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, you said that on the last day, many, many people will come to you and brag about all the miraculous things they've done. Not just good things, but miraculous things they've done for you. And, and you'll reply, get away from me. I never knew you. So Jesus, forbid that empty bragging and boasting in us. Forbid that we could be happy and lighthearted about Easter bunnies, but miss the point. The dead serious, the resurrection serious point of all that you've done and where it's leading until that last day. It's more important than whether or not we attend church on Easter or at all. It's about knowing you and not wasting our lives. So, Lord, I give you our time. We give you our time and ask that this service would not be wasted, but it would hasten the day through what you do here, the very real day where you will come again in glory, the resurrected one, claiming a church for himself. Amen. With our time today, I want to do, I'm going to be doing two things, uh, at least figuratively. I'm going to be painting a picture and drawing a line. So with the Holy Spirit's help in my proclaiming and in your receiving, I want to firstly paint a picture of what's happening here in Revelation 7. It's peculiar. It's mysterious. And secondly, I want to draw a line from the creation of the world to the death and resurrection of Jesus right through our lives to that moment in Revelation 7 with the hope that God would help us to powerfully apply and navigate through our current realities until that sure day, to live in that context, to to live along that line. So first of all, painting a picture. The older I get, the more fascinated I become with the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation, among other things that we have in our Bible. Here's why I'm so fascinated with him. I think he he was one of the youngest of the disciples and one of the people who turned the world upside down by proclaiming what he saw in Jesus. And the more his influence grew and the more the gospel spread and dominated the world without external force of humans, the more fame and renown John acquired, the less he was impressed with that. And the more mesmerized he was by the fact that Jesus ever loved him in the first place. See, he was the one that in his 80s probably wrote the book of John, recounting some of the things that he didn't see circulating in the gospel accounts. And he wrote the book of John, and one of the things he did is he kept referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
See, that's what he was more fascinated by. In fact, John Piper, another John, a pastor in, in Minnesota, in preaching about Revelation, he actually says this that's really apt for this. He says, if your name is written in the book, the aim of your life isn't simply to stay alive, but to stay in love with God. And that's the story of John the Apostle. A little more background on John. Like any good Jewish boy, he believed in the creator God, the calling of faith through Abraham, the covenant of God that he made with a rebellious people through Moses. And he believed about how the kings from Solomon to Rehoboam on down corrupted the things of God. And because of that, the, that the people of Israel were in bondage, first to Babylon and then to Persia and then to Rome. And for centuries, John and the Jewish people leading up to the coming of Christ were anxiously awaiting the promised Messiah, the one who would come and rescue them from their oppression. They were humbled, humiliated, and John was probably a good example of this. He was very humble. He was basic, you could call him. He lived in the outskirts of nowhere, far north of Jerusalem or of any culturally relevant place in his day, on the Sea of Galilee. And if his geography didn't already disqualify him from being chosen by and used by God, it would seem that his occupation did disqualify him. He was a fisherman, which was like one rung down on the occupational ladder from uh, the Walmart shelf stalker at night. Now, don't get all sensitive with that. I said it would appear that he was disqualified because of all these things. But this is the John that Jesus chose, that Jesus used, that Jesus loved. This is the John that that received this love so deeply that he was like a spring that sprung back with a love in response. He loved Jesus back. He was the one who actually wrote in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. John was fascinated with this Jesus, even just a a few interactions with this Jesus. And John was convinced that this is the one, this is the promised Messiah which is why it had to be so painful for John and very confusing to see this same Jesus on a Friday afternoon being tortured, scourged, crucified on a Roman cross. John was like, look, this is not how this is supposed to go. Everyone else ran away from Jesus, and John was there with Jesus' mom and a few others watching as Jesus breathed his last As he died, as the spear was driven through his side and blood and water came rushing out, as they took him down that afternoon, he was having a really bad weekend, to say the least. But then Sunday morning came. Sunday morning by which we navigate our lives today. Jesus got up out of the grave, and he appeared to John and a few others. In the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to around 500 verifiable historical accounts, people that he came to, people that knew that he was very much verifiably, historically dead on that Friday afternoon, but the same person is appearing to us. For 40 days, Jesus appeared to these 500 people, and then he ascended 
into heaven. And he told these people, go into all the earth and share this. And they did. And it, it was so powerful, this message that they spread, that it began to upset social order. And so the, the Jewish and the Roman authorities tried to clamp down on that because it was extremely inconvenient for them. So they tried to kill some of these people, and they did. They killed a lot of them. They tortured others. And these people suffered torture. And they didn't change their story. No one changed their story. Don't brush over this detail in our story, in our history. 500 people claimed to have saw, seen the resurrection, rec, resurrected Christ, didn't change their story. Many of them tortured, killed. No one changed their story. Now, in the last 2,000 years, there's been different reasonings, different uh, theories on why this could be that people see, claim to see this unified story about this resurrected one. What we can at least gather from this, and I, I think there's a lot of good evidence about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this to me is the most compelling. The fact that there needs to be any alternative explanation about what is true in the past. An explanation of 500 people seeing a resurrected one, not changing their story. There was other alternative explanations, and I'm not going to get into those, but the fact that we would even have to come up with those shows something powerful. And the best explanation of why 500 people claim to have seen Jesus rise from the dead, this is going to blow your mind, ready? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. And he ascended to heaven, and he's still not dead. And he's coming back in glory. And his kingdom will have no end, is what the creed says. These people were willing to testify to that truth, even when they were being killed. Because they had a really good context of history. They were able to see the smallness of their temporary suffering in light of something way bigger. They knew about the future glory of those who guarded their faith in the resurrected one. And so they could draw a line right through their suffering to that point where they would have a seat at the throne with their name on it before the throne. So that's just what happened with John. John wouldn't shut up about this Jesus who rose from the dead, and he gained a lot of influence, and it was very inconvenient, and so they decided to kill him. They boiled him in water, and he didn't die. Had to be painful for the rest of his life. And they just decided, okay, well, if, if, boiling, if, we, can't, if we can't kill him, even boiling him in, in, sorry, in, in oil doesn't work, then I guess we need to just send him away so he'll shut up. And so they exiled him to the land, to the island of Patmos, figuring, okay, well, he'll shut up now. But he didn't shut up. In fact, his voice grew in a multiplied sense. He began to write. He wrote the, the gospel account of John, first, second, third John, the letters to churches, and he wrote Revelation in which is this picture. Now, knowing what John went through, I pray that we can see through John's eyes a little bit more what's going on here in chapter 7 of Revelation. He says in verse 9, After this I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
You need to know that in the first century, hearing that a people from every nation, the Greek word is ethnos, where we get our word ethnicity, all the ethnicities are being allowed into heaven. This would have been difficult to process for a first century Jew. And not just that, but every ethnos, every tribe and language and all peoples innumerably there before the throne. Now, I think we can have a little bit of understanding from just our culture. In our day, it seems like tribalism is getting worse and not better. Would you agree? Uh, maybe it's the kind of the social media making things worse. But enmity in our culture now is no longer just uh, restricted to religion, race, and politics. Now it's whether or not you're into vaccines or if you decided to demonize an entire group of foods, or if you're into indie music, or if you're of the Reddit tribe. Apparently Reddit's like uh, alternative media or something, like a website. I didn't know this. Or if you parent your kids, quote, God's way, which apparently there's a way. It's not in the Bible. It must be another book that's not in there. Tribalism seems to have gotten worse. And so we have a little bit of context for this. But I would argue, and I don't think I can be refuted, that the ethnocentrism and the the tribalism of John's day among first century Jews is worse than what we experience even in our culture. It felt like to them to be a matter of survival. And so how potent is this picture, knowing that, that John sees all, all the ethnos gathered to this one who is so attractive that all the other things around him are seemingly insignificant because all these peoples, the barriers between them is being destroyed by this beauty. And then to make things perfectly provocative, we have the palm branches. Let me just explain a little bit more about the palm branches. If you read in the book of Leviticus, the people of Israel, right from coming out of the the bondage in Egypt, they were to wave the palm branches to celebrate their liberation on the celebration of Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths. They were to wave the palm branches to identify with and to remember how God liberated them. Then if you fast forward a few centuries, in the, in the few centuries preceding the coming of Christ, when the people of Israel were, were under Roman oppression and slavery, as it were, There was a few different times, like the Maccabeans, that a few Jewish zealots rose up and revolted against Roman rule and had what would become a really momentary moment of, a momentary time of of limited, temporary freedom. And this freedom would be celebrated invariably with the waving of palm branches in the city square and in Jerusalem. And it was short-lived. And nonetheless, the palm branches became a symbol of liberation for the Jewish people. It was even on some of the temple coins that we can recover, palm branches you'll find on them. So how gripping is this picture? Maybe 80 years after the birth of Christ, John sees a mostly non-Jewish, redeemed multitude waving palm branches in unity in order to glorify the risen one who is not just the Messiah of the Jews, but the savior of all the ethnos. See, it was as as edgy as it could be in this world. But then it just gets out of this world. Verse 11, 
all the angels were standing around the throne. Now, if you know anything about angels from the Bible, it's enough to make you really uncomfortable. It says all the angels were standing around the throne and around them, the elders, I think the elders are human. I don't know. But then it says the four living creatures, totally not human. And they fell on their faces before God and worshiped. You see, any weird differences they had with their fellow worshipers were insignificant in this moment. Everyone was in unity. And what they had most in common was whatever kind of faces they had, they were on the ground before God. Now, if you, if you find it, which everyone in, in a church like this finds it a little different, if you find it different to worship along, alongside people in a diverse church that are very different than you, I'll just say get used to it if you're a believer. And a lot of people find it hard to relate to me because I'm just like, I tell dad jokes that don't land, and I'm kind of like different. But I'm just going to say, these four living creatures will be harder to relate to than me. But in that moment, it won't matter. Because you won't be self-conscious, no matter what you're wearing. Well, we're all going to be wearing white, so that's cool. We won't be looking at, well, what are they wearing? You won't be others-conscious. You'll be so God-conscious because the, the compelling nature of what Jesus draws us to, there will be no other thing to do than to say with them, they worshiped, verse 12, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. If you counted, I'll give you a chance to count. There's, there's seven attributes Seven attributes. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion. In my opinion, I think this is seven here to exclaim that the the perfect attributes of God, his perfection is totally complete. And I'm I'm not going to dive deeply into each and every one of these attributes, but I can at least tell you that there's more potency to each of these words than our English translations and our language and culture context can do justice to. I'm just going to point out a few. Where it says glory, it's the Greek word doxa, which means uh, judgment and splendor. That God has an infinitely higher view upon which to judge, a place of splendor. And when it says power, it's not just like our language context. We, we, We say power, we might be referring to like petroleum or something. This is different. The word power is the Greek dynamis, where we get our English words dynamic or dynamite, meaning only transcendent, miraculous power. You can never use this word unless you're describing the the power of God himself. So check it out. In the Lord's Prayer in the book of Mark, Jesus adds that caveat where he tells us to, to pray, for thine alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory. In other words, thine alone, God, is the kingdom and the dynamis the doxa, God's power, his perfection is complete. It demands that we have no other choice but to fall on our faces and exclaim his greatness. Lord, paint a picture for us better than any of us can do in our thinking of how wonderful and beautiful and terrifying that day will be of your glory. 
And so help us to live and love appropriately. And so secondly, drawing a line. From what you know, is your life in right alignment with the picture that we see in Revelation 7? Church isn't a place to judge other people, but I hope it's a place that God can help us to judge ourselves rightly because there's so much grace in that. God knows the answer to this question more than we do. But for what you know, from what you know, is your life in right alignment with this picture of worship? A few months ago, our church was given some some tools for screen printing. And, and I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to print some shirts for the church, you know, to like save some time and money. And uh, some of y'all know how that, how, how that goes sometimes. I, I did the opposite of save, saving time and money. But here's what happened. When I print the, the shirts, I got it to where like the screen printing was pretty clear. It came out pretty well but it was crooked on the shirt. That was the only problem. In fact, one person that saw it said, oh, I thought you were going for the crooked look. And I tried to pretend like she didn't hurt my feelings. But I soon found that, yes, there was nothing wrong with the the, the printing screen, but I looked under and it was the, the arm under the screen was out of alignment. So it didn't matter how much I tried to line up the shirt, the, the arm was out of alignment. Y'all, sometimes the problem with our lives has less to do with the picture that we see, the details of our lives. It has more to do with our lives being out of alignment with how that picture is meant to fit in with the different hinge points of history. From why we're created to the death and resurrection of Jesus to that final moment where a multitude will stand before him and give to him what he deserves. In other words, it's not always that you're necessarily living wrongly or breaking the rules. It's not just that you're living wrongly. It's that we're not living in light of eternity. We're out of alignment. It's possible to be aware of the resurrection, maybe even uh, technically kind of mentally believe that he rose, but to not be faithfully in alignment with the resurrection, to not faithfully draw a line from the empty grave to our circumstances to the full throne of God. It's way too common, in fact, to do the opposite, to deeply align your life's aims with other loves and not walk out the freedom that was purchased for you at the cross that was sealed in the resurrection and that culminates at the throne. Freedom secured and yet suppressed. This makes me think of Juneteenth. Uh, I know you don't check your calendars. I know it's not June, but I think even though it's April, um, this reality of freedom secured and yet suppressed makes me think of Juneteenth. Following the surrender of the Confederacy, the Texas slave masters 
decided to suppress some really important facts about history, namely the Emancipation Proclamation. So for months, they just chose to lie to former slaves about their freedom that was purchased by the blood of Union soldiers. So check it out. The lies of the enemies of these precious people that were former slaves, the lies of, of their former slave masters, even though they were legally free because of the lies of these people, their enemies, they weren't able to experience the freedom that was really theirs. When the slaves became aware of their freedom, I think it was in Galveston, they rejoiced. They rejoiced, but then they, they continued to fight to secure the proper outcomes of the freedom that was purchased for them in the past. And has the fight ended? No, today the fight continues to apply what's been purchased unto its necessary result, to draw a proper line from why our nation was created to the fully realized freedom that it guarantees. Similarly, All humans were created for salvation and freedom and glory. I think rightly stated, we were endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights, right? But the problem is, is we've all alienated ourselves. We've all given ourselves in sin over to the enemy of our souls to suffer under the oppression of his bondage in sin, And Jesus came to his enemies, us, to set us free from bondage by the life he lived, the life we should have lived, by the death he died, which is what we should have died, and by rising again from the dead. And so today, the only power that the enemy, the devil has, is to lie to us about the facts of history of what Jesus paid for. But it's only delaying the inevitable crescendo of this song that will culminate in Revelation 7. It's a song that you can hear if God gives you ears today, that you can align with, that your life can harmonize with, with God's power, and that the enemy is powerless to prevent. See, the song of the Lamb is a fight song. We experience suffering and pain here, but those things are comparatively insignificant because we know the outcome and we're progressing irreversibly towards it. If you don't draw a line from Christian past to Christian future, you won't harness the power to live in the present. You don't have to know completely what the symbolism is of Revelation 7, like, uh, be able to draw a picture of the four living creatures. Um, you, you don't need to theorize about who the beast is in a few chapters after that. But if you don't know how you can be secured to be numbered with that multitude on the last day, your life is in danger. If you scoff at the idea that there are very real invisible forces pleading for your attention for your affection, appealing to your senses, for your heart's deepest allegiance, 
goading you to just treasure anything but Jesus, even good things like your job, your body, your girlfriend, your financial security, even your family. If you can't see that, you're in danger. So how do we know? How do we know if, if we're in that multitude, in the book, singing that song today and forever and ever? Please, please pay, pay really close attention to these last few verses because remember, uh, John saw this vision and then there was some commentary after what he saw. One of the elders said, hey, uh, ask him this question. And he needed to reinforce something. And I think we too need some reinforcement about this vision. So check this out. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, hey, hey, who are those clothed in white robes? And where do they come from? Apparently there's rhetorical questions even in heaven. Verse 14, I said to them, sir, you know is true. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, I don't know if the great tribulation is a fixed point in the future or if it's the whole tribulation and suffering that all of humanity will suffer from the resurrection to the culmination. I tend to think it's that one. But I do know this. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what distinguishes a Christian from someone who thinks they're a Christian or, or someone who's not a Christian that knows they're not a Christian? Robes. Don't rush home to check your closet. It's a different kind of robe. It's a beautiful paradox. Red blood washing robes white. It's not, there's no bleaching effect in Jesus' blood. It's more a faith thing in the purity of our hearts. The spotless one died for the rest of us who are smeared with blemishes. The pure one died for the impure, the perfect for the imperfect. Would you stand with me, please? blood of Jesus. Sing with me. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes. It washes white as snow. It washes white. It washes white as snow. It washes. It washes white as snow. I pray that the Lord would help us to sing with confidence that song. If any devil in hell tells you, how do you know you're going to heaven? Oh, the blood. And as we go to communion, there's something crucial about the blood, something crucial that's all over our text that you may not see, that we can come in thanksgiving to celebrate the blood, gain our sustenance from it, be washed by it, and be overwhelmed, springing forth with love and thanksgiving. Do you know what the Greek word for thanksgiving is? 
It's the Greek word eucharisto. It's in our text. Remember the attributes that are rendered to God. To God be blessing and glory and wisdom and Eucharist, thanksgiving, and honor and power and might. Eucharist is the word for thousands of years that we've called this moment. Check it out. We, we in this moment, powerfully and by faith and by action, we choose in faith to empty ourselves of any anxiety or fear or sin or unbelief that would prevent us from being washed. And we come and render thanksgiving and we receive the elements, the, the faith of God with thanksgiving. And it's transformative. It's transformative.